Greetings, building science enthusiasts, and welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Passive House Austin. Passive House Austin is an organization with a vision. Their mission is to advocate for the adoption of Passive House standards of design and construction in the greater Austin, Texas area and beyond through means of education, governmental petition, and targeted industry efforts. For more information and to find out how you can join this group of industry thought leaders, check out PassiveHouseAustin.org. Welcome to this. Okay. Uh, welcome to the Building Science to the Building Science Podcast. 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 Welcome to the Building Science Podcast. Bringing the human factor to architecture and design. Brought to you by Positive Energy in Austin, Texas. Hello and welcome back, everybody. Welcome back to the Building Science Podcast. I'm Christoph Irwin. Here, as always, with my trusty sidekick, Miguel. We are also here today with Nathan Kipnis. He's a fellow with the AIA, which is uh, quite a distinction. He's principal at Kipnis Architecture Plus Planning, and he is also the co-chair of the AIA National 2030 Commitment Working Group. So he is an individual who is deeply committed to the practice of architecture. And we met at an AIA awards celebration at AIA National recently in New York City, And we got talking about, I think it was the practice of architecture as a sort of a motive force to change the way buildings are designed. And it was just a fascinating conversation. And that combined with the 2030 challenge is why Nathan is our guest today on the podcast. So Nathan, please say hello to our audience. And if there's anything else with the introduction that I didn't say that you'd like to say, this is your opportunity. Well, thanks for having me, and uh, it's the 2030 commitment. Oh, I said challenge, didn't I? The 2030 challenge is we're kind of a subgroup of that. Okay, yes, let's start with that. Can you help me understand the distinction between the 2030 challenge and the 2030 commitment? Yeah, the 2030 challenge was um, put out by Ed Mazaria Mm -hmm. a good solid 10-plus years ago, and the AIA signed on and committed to that, and hence the name of the 2030 commitment. I and, see. Uh, so now we've been trying to get architects to actually um, commit to these goals of getting to net zero by 2030, and we're doing it in a stepped way. So right now we should be doing 70% better than a 2030 baseline building, and not easy to do. No, that 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 is a fruitful topic. Yeah, let's just stick with this. This is good. So as I understand it, the commitment, the AIA 2030 commitment is AIA's response to the 2030 challenge from Ed Masria. Is that right? Correct. Correct. Got it. Okay, so the 2030 commitment is a commitment to uh, reduce your baseline energy use. So that 70%, is that really, is it an energy metric? Is it a carbon metric? What is the metric? Well, right now it's uh, an energy metric because we're able to measure that. I think at some point we're going to transition to a carbon Okay, and it's it's site energy, source energy. Well, right now it's it's site energy, and we are going to be moving to uh, in, probably incorporate uh, beyond the site. So that is going to be something we're going to be looking at because as we're moving towards getting to zero, it's getting tougher and tougher, and we need to look at a bigger picture. So we need to incorporate both site and source energy. Okay, and just for you guys listening, just to get a sense of why this is so important, uh, 
I think we all know that uh, buildings use a large majority of the energy in our country, something on the order of 60%, and that architects are, are very influential and very involved in the decision-making processes that impact energy use. So you specifically, Nathan, you are also, uh, let's see, you're a co-chair on the 2030 Commitment Working Group. Is your firm... Kipnis Architecture Plus Planning, have you, has that firm signed on? Oh, yeah. No, we signed on right away. I've been involved okay. very early on. And, uh, yeah, we were one of the earlier um, uh, signatories to it. Cool. And now our goal uh, moving forward is to get more and more firms to sign on. There's been a lot of work in the last uh, four or five years of getting the technical aspects of this up to speed and to getting the uh, DDX, which is the design data exchange, mm -hmm. um, implemented so that that's the reporting process for the 2030 commitment. And now we're really trying to get people signed on and getting the people that are signed on to report. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So you're putting the, the infrastructure in place to, to do this and that, that happened and now you're doing uptake efforts. How has uptake how is it going? What's the status today? How many firms roughly, if, if you know? So we're homing in on 550 firms, and it's it's a wide range. It's a lot of very, very large firms, and uh, and then, a, you know, a, well represented throughout, but we do want to make sure we get small firms involved, and we know there's different challenges for different size firms. Mm -hmm. So uh, a small firm like ours, we're a five-person firm. I just decided one day to do it. I didn't have to confer with <laughs> other principals. I didn't have to think about how this worked financially. We just decided to do it. But as you get larger and larger, um, it gets more complex. So a firm like Gensler, which is the mm -hmm. largest firm right now, um, they, you know, I think they have something like 200 principals. I mean, if you can even wrap your head around that. Wow. And so the concept of how they determined it. I don't know their inner workings, but obviously very, very different than a small firm. Mm -hmm. And medium-sized firms are interesting because they have some number of principles. So you need to get an agreement there. And there's some financial implications, but they don't have the finance finances necessarily that a huge firm has. So to me, that middle-sized firm, that 50 to 150, mm -hmm. is probably the trickiest one. Um, so we're we try and figure out ways for these different size firms, um, how to, uh, how to entice them to join. And it, it's not all the same. Mm -hmm. Is there a direct financial implication or are you talking about the, the time, the, the time value of money? Of the um, it, you know, we don't think this takes very long to do, but the thing of it is like we've, we've figured out that it's maybe 15 minutes a project to report your info. Uh, into the DDX. It's not very difficult, but what is challenging, not all firms have it set up, is how do you calculate your energy use intensity number? Yeah. And yeah. so some firms have mechanical engineers and they'll provide that. Some people do it in-house like we do. Mm -hmm. And um, so it's just a matter of getting the data and it, it, you know, it just varies based on the size of the firm and the way your practice is set up mm -hmm. so for some firms it's, it's easy like every project yes we get an, an eui the energy use intensity number and then you just plug it in um i think it's also just like fear of the unknown um, yeah 
these firms are like, oh my God, what am I committing to? And the, and the word commit is a little intimidating, I got to say. So it's not that big a deal. There's no green police that's going <laughs> to do anything bad to you if you don't make the, the number. It's just, to me, the goal here is to start reporting, start seeing where you're at, and then starting to see what you can do in your firm to make that number better. Yeah, well Project said. by project and year by year. And so when you join, maybe you don't hit a very high number. It's all anonymous reporting. Oh, that's fascinating. So it's anonymous reporting. Totally anonymous, but on the DDX, you can see a scatter plot of where your projects are versus these grayed out other ones that are in a subset that you create. So you can create it by geography, by project size, by project type, and you can see how you're doing, but without, you know, letting other people know that. And I know because it's, it's a challenge. We don't want people to get intimidated by that. Mm-hmm. I like it. I have two quick comments on that. One is the, that the fact that you show where a firm is relative to basically their self-designated peer group, that's so influential. It turns out that as mammals, we're very responsive to our perceptions of how our peer group sees us. <laughs> and so the other comment I had just in terms of measuring things like, you know, let's just say, let's think, think it's a medical metric, like your blood pressure, right? You could argue it's, it's very important, you know, get to a certain age to, to know how your blood pressure is doing. But do you really want to know if someone walks up to you and says, Hey, you want me to measure your blood pressure? Or how about your cholesterol score? You know, it's, um, it, there's like a reluctance and so, no, I just assume not. No. Um, but back to EUI, is it both like a predicted EUI, a modeled EUI, and then later a monitored, measured EUI? What gets so it reported? Is, it's, it's the predicted EUI. So that's uh, we're trying to get people to do energy modeling either with their consultant or in-house. I mean, I actually prefer that we do it in-house because we see in real time what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, but and, and then we can see it at different phases if we want to look at it that way. Yeah, it can impact uh, design, feeds back. Abs- absolutely. At schematic design, if you have three designs, you can do a very, very quick little EUI study and go, wow, look at that. Just by the orientation and the shape of the building, look at the differences here. And then you can you know, show that to the client and then make decisions based on that. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I, I think it's really important. It, but we may be moving into getting some data, um, actual performance data. That is not part of the program right now, but some firms do that just to check where they're at. Mm-hmm. And obviously, it's eye-opening to see that. It depends on your client. Uh, people are never going to use it as it was modeled, but mm-hmm. um, you can still point. glean a lot of good info from that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what's the famous quote? It's, uh, all models are wrong. Some are also useful. And I think there's some accuracy in that. What, if you don't mind me asking, what, what software are you using, or how do you go about predicting your we, EUIs? Yeah, we use Safira now. Uh, we had been using a program called Heed, H E D, which yeah. is a free download from UCLA. If you just do a Google search of Heed, Google uh, Heed UCLA, you'll find that. Uh, I was tasked with that during the recession to find an inexpensive way to take that out of the you know, out of a, a reason for a firm not to join. Yeah. And so smart. we found this cross platform free program, which is really pretty powerful. It just is primarily based for residential. Hmm. Um, it can work for other stuff, but it's really like if you do a, 
kind of a five-year-old version of a five-year-old's version of a house, you know, yeah. simple home. The mm-hmm. thing is amazing. Um, probably not going to work for Zaha Hadid's firm or you know, <laughs> stuff like that. Um, not a lot of curves. Yeah. So yeah, anyway, I'm, we, we transitioned to Safara. Safara is a, a much more capable and it's really graphically nice. And there's a lot of other choices too. I should also say the AIA is coming out with an updated version of their guide to modeling, um, guide to energy modeling, which is going to be fantastic. And it's got, um, it's got a range for small firms, medium and large, how to do this. There was a version that was maybe eight years old and uh, definitely needed to be updated. And so that's, I'm not sure when that's going to be out, but it'll probably be towards the end of the year. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's beautiful. And it dovetails nicely with the AIA Coat Committee's toolkit that's out. It also helps mm-hmm. to design, you know, impact the design process. So back to the 550 firms participating, uh, two questions. One is, how many firms are there? Does the AI, you know, how many, it's 550 out of how many do we think, roughly? Yeah, it's about out of 20,000. Two weeks, so we need but, to get some more. But the th- interesting thing is, and so, yeah, so the interesting thing is, it's a lot of the big firms. So from a square footage standpoint, mm. it's very impressive. And I don't remember the exact number, but it's over 3 billion square feet now. So wow. it is a lot of very large firms are involved with this that do tremendous amounts of square footage. Um, but what we want to do is not just have that be the main part of this. We want every size firm and every type of firm involved. Mm-hmm. They have to be. I mean, we really got, you know, we're only uh, 12 years out. Yeah, that's a good one. Take it a long view. I think that's great. We, we've talked about on this ep- podcast many times this idea about what are we putting in place now that's going to have a, a large impact uh, 50 years from now or, you know, 100 years? We don't, we, we don't have that much time. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> so it's, it's really right now. Yeah, yeah, there needs to be a sense of urgency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Just thinking about human psychology, though, it's the sense of urgency can be a motivation factor and it can be a, a fear a, lock up. Yeah, exactly. It can just undermine motivation. You just kind of deer in the headlights feeling, you know. And do you find yourself working with that as a firm or talking to other people? Um, you know, we've always been involved with this. So to me, this is a very logical thing to do. But um, some firms, um, well, let's back up. So the AIA did a study uh, a year or two ago, and I think 93% of AIA members were able to understand climate change. It said that they were, you know, that it was a positive uh, understanding of it. Although I do wonder who those 7% are, but <laughs> that don't get it. But I think as an industry or as a profession, we get it better than almost everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, we, we still need to get more and more people involved. I've heard at the convention, I'll hear people like, no, I've never heard of the 2030 commitment. And I'm just wow. stunned. Yeah. And I've also occasionally heard other architects talking like, wow, I don't know if I believe this. And, you know, you got you to gotta pull your head out of the sand and engage on this. Mm-hmm. And it's not that hard. I mean, honestly, you know, we're a small firm. We're able to do this and we're able to do it successfully. And, you know, we still have budgets to deal with. We still have 
clients who don't get it totally, and we've been able to dovetail it into our workflow. Yeah, that's great. I think that's so important that, like, you go buy a car and you buy a quality car, you don't, you as the client or the buyer, me as the client or the buyer, I don't have to make every decision, right? My, the manufacturer made a lot of decisions. And similarly, you as the architect are making decisions on the client's behalf that you can actually move the move the needle quite quite a lot and still yeah, give we've them had, the beautiful design they want. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we there's this thing called the Green Built Home Tour that we do every year in Chicago and uh it's open to the public and we've had clients we've gotten clients through there and some of them absolutely know nothing about this and when they come into it then they get a little understanding and then when we're working with them they totally buy into it they drink the kool-aid they're totally involved now and so this year um, we have a project that is going to be on the tour it's about 60 or 70 percent complete and the clients came into it not knowing anything and they are so totally sold on it and now they have a house that's hitting that 70 percent mark and they're super proud of that that is so great. Yeah, I want to dig into that's getting into the part two of this, talking about client engagement and how you work with them. Staying with the, the 2030 commitment a bit longer. So there's 550 firms. A lot of them are large firms. And the the number of projects, do you have a sense about that? Uh, how, how many projects are being submitted I or have don't, been submitted? It- I don't. They're just about to release, uh, our committee's about to release the 2017 data, and I don't know where we're currently at. I believe in previous years, like I said, we're kind of at that 3 billion square foot number. I think last year we were at 2.6 billion, and I think that's out of 44 or 45 billion worldwide. Wow. So, I mean, it's it's getting there, um, and a lot of it has to do with these humongous firms but you know we submit uh i think seventy thousand square feet that's all we submit you know but we're doing what we're doing Mm -hmm. and so uh, i don't think you have to go gee whiz i'm not going to have an impact right um i think having examples of our work and other architects see it and then they do it you know that's how we get our impact right okay sorry so where we are today so the 2030 challenge i'm saying that correctly commitment well, the 2030 challenge for Mazaria's statement was yeah. basically getting to a net zero status by 2030. Um, is that right, by the way? I mean, yes. I, I can see the graph in my mind's eye. And so here's 2018. we got 12 years to go. By 2018, the EUI numbers should be at 70% or better reduction from the initial, uh, the baseline. Um, how many, you know... There must be tens of thousands of projects submitted by these, you know, uh, 550 firms. Do you have any sense how many of them are are hitting this 70% or better target? Well, yeah. In 2016, we had 331 that hit that number. Wow. So it's 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 a very difficult task. Mm-hmm. That's 331 um, out of... R- I'm, I'm not sure, but you're right. It's in the 10,000 scale, you mm-hmm. know, something okay. like that order of magnitude. Um, but there's probably a lot that are very close. And the more important thing to me is that if you look year by year, lots of firms are making progress. 
that's that they would never have made. So that's the key thing is like year by year, how are you doing? Mm-hmm. I don't really care right now that if firms are hitting that 70%, I mean, it's great. To me, it's much more important that they're they're making progress. Yeah. And you've hit 70%. Is that right? So like On some of our projects. So what we also like to do is try and get this into the firm culture scale and not the superstar project scale. Every firm is going to have a project a year that's, you know, or maybe they have, but generally a firm will have a project that they're super proud of and it's really great. That's good. But what we want to do is get the whole firm's culture involved yeah, and move it the whole thing. It's, it's, it's sort of easy to get that one project doing great. Mm-hmm. It's harder to get like your whole thing. So part of the other thing about joining or committing to the 2030 commitment is to have a sustainability action plan. And what that is, is how are you as a firm moving your firm culture forward? So what are you doing in the firm? So LED lights and, you know, we're doing telecommuting and we're reducing this, that, and the other. But then also, you know, we have the goal, let's say, of doing a net zero house this year, one of them. We want to do four houses with green roofs. We want to do... We want to start implementing triple glazed windows, whatever it is, individually to your firm. What steps do you want to make? You put it down in in writing, and these are all online. You can see how other firms are doing theirs. You can kind of go in and cherry pick what you want if you want to write yours up. Um, And everyone's is different. And uh, it's, it's an important thing to do. So the sustainability action plan you just mentioned. Oh yeah. So the is that part of the commitment or where? Yeah, it's one of the steps. So one of the steps is to physically sign the document. Mm-hmm. And, you know that I have committed to doing this. And again, I think that word commitment's a little scary to people. We don't yeah. want to use that as a reason not to join. Um, again, no green police. Yeah. But uh, and then the sustainability action plan is a key part, and then reporting on the DDX is uh, another great part of the program. Got it. So we're trying to really get the whole firm lifted upward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I love it. And I appreciate that you said it, it can be scary because, you know, it's it's like uh, someone that wants to start an exercise program, right? You know, you can get stuck feeling intimidated by the aspiration you have, but you should just well, start. <laughs> yeah, we had, we had two firms in Chicago. I'm not going to name them, but like superstar firms, mm-hmm. like unbelievable uh, nationally, globally known. And one of the guys who's a great guy was, he's, he's like a boy scout and he just didn't want to sign this if he knew he couldn't make it or he had the inkling that he wouldn't make it. I'm like, that is not the reason to not join this thing. You need to just get on board and start making progress. Yeah. And so he did join their, their firm joined. And then this other firm as well. Um, and I'm, I'm very happy that they both did. They're, Peers look to them, and uh, it's important that they are on board. That's fantastic. Yeah. Okay. So let's start segueing in from uh, 2030 commitment to your firm. So your firm has done like how many projects do you do in a typical year? Is it uh, dozens? Uh, is it a yeah, dozen? Do- dozen is kind of a scale. Okay. So. Actually, we haven't talked about. Well, tell us about what your firm does. It, it, I've I've heard that it's residential now, so which is fantastic. 
Uh, well, we do about some. 70 to 80 percent residential. We do uh, some commercial work as well, which is anything from retail, restaurants, office build out. We're starting to do a little bit of industrial. And for quite a while, we had an, uh, an emphasis on airport facility work, aviation work. Wow. Um, that was a fluke. And then it lasted quite a while, and we're still open to that. Once in a while, we do something at an airport. Yeah, it sounds like you're you've got a really broad perspective on the on the market too, on the types of projects. But staying with residential, you know, very similar to what you said about the firm culture, right? So, what you experience at as at your firm impacts just basic your basic relationship with these ideas and the actions needed to be sustainable. Similarly, you mentioned that you had a 70% project with, you know, a homeowner. Well, that homeowner tells their friends, they're proud of that, their understanding of what's possible has been revised. Um, it's something about making it at the home level that's just so much, it's so very potent. And it's also slightly easier in the sense that you, Nathan, are sitting across the table from someone else, the client, probably a smaller group, maybe a husband and wife, maybe just one. And once there's good communication and, and trust between you, um, those decisions can get made and they don't have to go to a committee or through a, you know, a, a board of advisors. Um, are you experiencing well, that, the nimbleness of decision making or no? <laughs> well, well. A, a husband and wife are not necessarily a... Uh, <laughs> you know that can be a committee machine <laughs> right yeah it depends sometimes clients are easy to work with and other times it's uh they've they've really got their own ideas and um oh, kind yeah. of blending it is just as hard as a committee but that's something they never taught us in school yeah so, so let's go there so what how do you how do you work with that do you have uh, or do you just bake in the the sustainable features and not tell them, or how do you work with that? Well, from a sustainable point of view, we always put things in. I mean, I had one client who saw we had an article about some work we did, and he goes, boy, it would have been great if we had some of that. I go, I put it in. Don't worry about it. You know, there's a, there's a kind of best practice that we do anyway, mm -hmm. even if someone is not wanting everything in there. Um, we actually got an email from one client who we had done their office for, and we had done their brother's house. And he sent me an email and he said, you know, uh, Nate, I want to go ahead with the project with you, but I want to make one thing perfectly clear. My wife and I want nothing green in this project. Whoa. We want a beautiful home. <laughs> As if those were mutually exclusive. And of course, we put all sorts of things oh. in, but I just thought that was the strangest email ever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like a Tesla or an iPhone, they're either functional or, you know, elegant. No, no. Wow. So how did you respond to that, Nathan? Oh, well, no, I, sir. Nothing green in your home. <laughs> yeah, we'll put the plutonium and the mold in for you. Don't worry about it. Um, yeah, it's kind of a strange one. So, I mean, we still did, again, just kind of our basic stuff, mm -hmm. you know, but not necessarily solar panels and this, that, and the other. But um, that's, that's unusual. Most of the people that come to our particular firm are going to be knowing what we do and uh, are going to demand that. And as a matter of fact, we have to kind of tone them down sometimes. They'll come in wanting everything. Mm -hmm. You know, they're like, oh, I've done all this homework and we want this, that, and the other included. I'm like, whoa, this makes no sense to do all of this. What's, 
look at your budget. Let's look at the site. Let's yeah. look at the context of what you're doing. This is what makes sense as a total package. So that's kind of the challenge with some of our clients, not all of them, but mm-hmm. some of them. Yeah, the, the idea of green by gadget and, and green by, you know, layer after layer of, of sort of right. complexity and and fancy assemblies and systems it really doesn't have to be that way just do the basics and do it right but one of the implicit distortions is in the residential market definitely the one here in texas that i'm familiar with it's it's really slipped a lot from what you would consider a quality approach to the enclosure and a quality approach to the mechanical system so it seems like you're being shrill and but really what you're doing is often you're just advocating for for sensible basics a good well, what we like mm-hmm. to do is look at historical precedents of how things were done prior to lots of energy being there available. You go. So if you vernacular look at like right, if you look at classic styles, those classic styles came about by a response to the environment. I think mm-hmm. you know, maybe some of it is materials that were local, and some of it's maybe a little bit cultural. But a lot of it is how do we keep the sun out? How do we ventilate? How do we get natural daylighting in? And when you do all those things, that's the right order. There's a, a chart that Passive House has and actually Safara has as yeah. well that shows, you know, here's your architectural decisions at the beginning, your passive t- strategies, and here's your mechanical strategies, your efficiency ones, and then finally your um, what's left you can make up with photovoltaics or or wind, but typically photovoltaics. And that's the right order. And if you don't do that, there's people out there that just throw solar panels thinking that's a great way to mm-hmm. do it. And it's wrong. It's, um, you know, we, we actually call that the Mr. Potato Head method, where you're just slapping them on. And uh, really, you have to think it through and minimize that because those things are not cheap. Yeah. 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 They're getting cheaper every year, which has been great, but they're still. Um, something to reckon with yeah and you have to do the efficiency things first and the good thing is the architecture is at the front you know like what is the orientation of this what how are the windows relative to the wall um what are the materials you know do we get this great natural ventilation and daylighting and and integrate that as a design element and not just kind of as an afterthought yeah well said man it's simple it's simple and it's uncommon so it's be a, a colleague, a colleague of mine, labeled that um, environmental expressionism, and I kind of like that. That suits us for just right. Yeah, environmental expressionism. That's great. Yeah, and, and so, for instance, I, I just got back visiting some family out in the Los Angeles area, and we were near the beach, and I happened to have a relative humidity and temperature sensor with me because I'm I'm that kind of person. <laughs> By your role, huh? <laughs> And uh, it just cracked me up how it was 75 degrees, 50% relative humidity, plus or minus, you know, a few digits the whole time I was there. And so what is that? That's indoor conditions. That's the target, you know, for ASHRAE, for design conditions. And that's the outdoor conditions. And when you have a lot of that kind of climate, you can really take great latitudes. You can do, you know, flat roofs, large expanses of glazing. You can take a lot of latitudes. But then when they export that, that, that vernacular architecture to, you know, a hot, hot, humid climate like Austin, it's inappropriate, right? Here you need like a, a shading structure, a sombrero, <laughs> a shade tree over your house. Well, what's funny is I went to school in uh, University of Colorado at Boulder, hmm. 
And then I went to grad school at Arizona State. And so how I was designing at Boulder, uh, you literally picked up the building and spun it 180 degrees in Phoenix. Like you'd want all the windows north facing and yeah. <laughs> want to stay in the shade. And it was just funny. And it, it, it was cool. actually very good to learn those two different ones and see the difference and then come back to Chicago where I'm from. Yeah. That's cool. What a great insight, spinning at 180. You know, I can tell you, and you can do it because you're using modeling as well. Once the basic massing, uh, the orientation and the aperture, you know, where you're cutting holes in your enclosure are fixed, you've accounted for probably on the order of 80%, 85% of the energy performance right then. And that's usually, you know, programming. That's even pre-SD sometimes. <laughs> Maybe it's getting into SD. Do you do that? Do you look at, actually, you mentioned it. You talked about doing different models, three different SD models. Does that happen on a typical residential project? Oh, yeah, absolutely. How do you uh, sell that to a client? I, Don't they just fall in love with one and no. ignore the other two? <laughs> Once in a blue moon, we'll do one where there's no other way to do it. I And I, we did this on the largest project we've ever done, and... I told the client, you know, it's not because of the fear or anything. I'm like, this is the solution. Mm -hmm. And they just moved in a couple of weeks ago. It was a three-year project. It was very intense. But rarely is that correct. Normally, we look at three different options. And I like to joke that that's not actually not a joke. I do want exactly what they tell us. Mm -hmm. I do want if I didn't hear a word they said. Mm -hmm. And then we do some other very weird variant or not, you know, just some other way to look at it. And I have no, nothing invested in any of them. I just say, you know, you, you might think it's this exact one that you said, but you might see like, wow, you know what? I like the relationship of how the indoor outdoor is on this one, or I like something better on this other one. And it gives that they know, they then know that they've made the right decision moving forward mm -hmm. because people um, can start to think like, Oh my God, I should have done this differently. And we want to explore that. And it's easy to do it. Schematic design. Yeah. It's not very difficult. And it's a very linear process. We take the three, we move forward with the one in design development. The decisions are much tighter and mm -hmm. move forward, you know, elevations, things like that. So at the end of the day, um, very rarely do we ever have anyone second guess themselves. I mean, almost never. We've been doing this uh, 25 years now. I've had the office. And they're saying something there. Congratulations. I actually, what you just said, you do one just as they say. One is that they didn't, you didn't hear anything they said. And then something, something new idea, intriguing. Just that takes a lot of um, discipline. And I mean, what I'm getting at is the way the typical architecture process at the beginning, I feel like it's a, it's ineffable. It's um, it's a creativity. It's a um, it's not a prescription. And I feel like you, as an individual, when you're engaged in that part of your art um, or part of the craft of architecture, it's got to be very tempting, Nathan, to just um, want to say, "Man, I just love this one, and I don't like these other ones as much." I get, I'm talking about the emotional element. Don't you get attached to one of the designs? It. It has happened, <laughs> but um, normally, you know, if you do three of them, um, and I'm actually, we, we like the fact that the three, you could pick any one of them and they typically would be good. Now, once in a while, well, the third one is just not great. And very rarely do they start like considering that one. Mm -hmm. 
and if, if if something's going wrong, I'll let them know. Mm-hmm. I'm like, you know, gee, I don't know if we should, you know, if, if we do this one, then maybe we should look at these other aspects. But normally it works out in the end just right. I've, I've been very happy with that process. And, you know, from a timeline and a fee uh, component, I don't really have a problem with that. You know, we're not ever really running into issues with that aspect of it. Okay. Time-wise or, or uh, budget-wise. So I think it's super important to get it right because then at the end, the project is so good. Yeah. Uh, or so much better than it would be if we only said, here's your one option. I could, I, I don't actually understand how an architect could do that. Yeah, I find it it's very striking how um, there's a tremendous skill involved in seeing what's not in front of you that you're reviewing. Whether it's an architectural you know, design or an engineering design, it's very easy to get stuck in like, well, let, let me see what's there and how I might tweak it or modify it or revise what's there. It's a much more subtle and, and acquired skill to see what's not there and to see what could be there. Um, so I think you're getting some of that when you do these three different options. Sometimes we'll do like little massing models too. Not all, not always, but um, you know, usually it's just in plan. Mm-hmm. Uh, site plan is very important in the and the main building plan. We don't do anything beyond that because it's a complete waste of time, you know, to flush it out. It's like the floor plan is so key to moving forward. Our initial connection at, in New York was uh, really around this, the importance of how you engage with your clients, like the process, sort of your, yeah, your, um, machine or I don't want to make it sound impersonal, but like how you've set up your business to engage with your client. How about we try to just run through briefly, uh, highlight how you handle the client process, like start to finish. Well, when we were in New York, we talked about this. I have two different ways that we do this. So one is myself as an architectural firm, mm-hmm. you know, Oh, right. Cause there's the and firm. planning plus planning. Well, and then there's this, mm-hmm component called next house alliance which is um i'll talk about that next but the the main thing is we uh try and market to sustainable people people that are interested in this and Mm -hmm. we have a reputation and we get things published if we're lucky Mm -hmm. and um and that helps bring in clients and then we do obviously as best job as we can and get that published if we can Mm -hmm. and that's kind of the cycle virtuous cycle yeah yeah, if we're if we're lucky, it's not uh, a given at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we've done homes and projects at the uh, f- um, you know affordable level, at the attainable level, and at higher end. And I just felt there was a part of the market that was missing, which was this very very high end part. And these homes, which people you know call McMansions or whatever, which I think are the p- very poorly designed ones. Yeah, what we want to do is there's uh, there are people out there that want to do very uh, high-end homes, and no one is helping them with this. And in fact, these homes have gigantic carbon footprints, and they have the means to make this correct. They are ready, willing, and able if we get the right client, and we can help them get the house size down a little bit, and then we can start designing it so that it's getting very close to net zero and hopefully very soon fully net zero. 
and making it really great for them. And the hook we're using is resilient design. Mm-hmm. And so we've been focused on sustainability for a very, very long time. And now we're seeing very obvious impacts from the weather, uh, high winds, heavy, extreme rain events, um, fires, all sorts of things. I mean, you just have to watch the news at night yeah. and get depressed about it. Right? <laughs> Try not to get flying lava hitting boats. You got all sorts of crazy stuff going on. And I think when you're at that level, it's not about status. It's about kind of this Zen lifestyle and how we can help these people accomplish that. And if they want to do this resilient design where they know they've got a house that can handle these heavy rains and heavy wind events and every, and power outages, um, and then you you do that, and we can do all the sustainable stuff. It's a very tight um, uh, Venn diagram at that point. You know, you you're interested in this resiliency. That's almost the same thing as all the sustainable things we want to do. And so what what I've done is I've assembled a team, um, myself, and then an interior designer, landscape architect, really great general contractor, and a technology integrator. And we're taking away the pain point mm-hmm. of having to do 20 plus interviews and then trying to guide them through this. And they want to do this. They're educated enough to know that this is the right thing to do and no one's helping. And so we want to be able to be the one source for that. That's fantastic. So you have a team that you've worked with and you can then uh, kind of eliminate the client having to engage over and over and go right yeah and put together a team that's never been put together before yeah uh-huh. you know like a client when they're doing a house at that level you know these people have never necessarily worked together who knows how this is going to work and what we're trying to do is take that part away and then i'm continually educating each member, like when I see an article or see something that's of interest, I forward that to them. I go, you should go to this. You should listen to this podcast. Mm-hmm. You know, here's something you need to be aware of so that the landscaper's totally up on their game and the interior designer, et cetera. Yeah. And it's, it's starting to come together. Yeah. Yeah. Interior design 2018, that field is ripe for transition in the sense that, you know, if you did the quick highlight of how to make a fantastic home for somebody it's start with a good enclosure minimize indoor emissions you know heat cool ventilate filter but that minimizing indoor emissions has a lot to do with what was chosen surface finish well, and using using local materials you know there's a reason when you go to santa fe that things look a certain way yeah. on the outside but on the inside too and so a lot of interior designers uh are kind of known for gallivanting all over the globe looking for stuff and really you know let's keep that very local engage these local people and then use obviously environmentally correct materials um and i think there's a an aesthetic that's going to come from mm-hmm, that mm-hmm. yeah what, what about in in the so beyond the artistic side of the design the actual you know the, the craft of architecture side now are you specifying uh the enclosure you know, the, the control layers and the insulation and where it is, whether it's continuous insulation or cavity or the mixture, 
Are you specifying that? Or are you leaving that to someone on your team? How, how does that work? Well, our team being the people here in the office. So we've spent a lot of time, a lot of years trying to figure out the perfect wall for this client mm-hmm. and the perfect enclosure and all these other details. So we've, we've got it figured out. And what's interesting, hmm. I'll tell you, to kind of connect it back to the 2030 commitment, is when we report, because we're doing 80% of houses, uh, when we make one design decision change, it shows up on the graph. And I'm like, oh, that's the year we did continuous insulation. Look at oh, that. That's so the year cool. we did this. And it jumps up and we're like, yeah, there you go. And so now we, like our kind of best practice thing gets us at 70% or better or very close to it every time. You know, we've got it figured out. Now the challenge is moving this thing to eat. Uh-huh. And, and it's uh, – that's no uh, easy No, deal. it's it's like wringing out a washcloth, you know. <laughs> it right. gets drier and right. drier and, and so, harder and harder to get water out, yeah. Uh, and again, just to get back to the 2030 commitment, you know, we're talking about that. You know, what if we start hitting peak efficiency? You know, where how can we do better? Mm-hmm. Um, how are you handling uh, the energy-using components? Are you doing all electric, electric gas? So we have transitioned to all electric homes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, I kind of got a little fed up with the, uh, these different companies, utility companies only raising the service charge and not raising yeah. the energy cost. Yeah. And they're sort of disincentivizing what we're doing. So if we can knock one of them out, then we do. Yeah. So it's all electric right now. Um, not every home, but we're moving towards that. So we've done a couple homes now that are all electric. We're using mini split systems Fantastic. Uh, and several zones of them induction cooking which i'll talk about in a second yeah and then the air source dryer uh, dryer and water yeah and we're loving it all um and what's interesting is we do get a little bit of pushback on the uh, induction cooktop tell me about that people yeah well it's you know when we're dealing with kind of uh you know higher end couples they might say you know i I have to have natural gas for cooking and what's been great is one of the uh uh, the GE Monogram showroom down at the Merchandise Mart in Chicago. They have an executive chef, and we just schedule a lunch, and he cooks all induction. And it's unbelievable how quick he does it and how great it tastes. Yeah. And usually that convinces them. And it's so nice that they allow us to do that. What a great model. Uh, That's cool. It's, it's Well, it's a fun one. Get to have a lunch out of it. and <laughs> it, But it's nice. It's nice to uh, engage like that where they can actually see it and that can help make their decision before we start the design. We talked about induction cooking. What about those condensing dryers? I mean, so we don't have a gas dryer anymore. We don't want an electric resistive dryer. Goodness, no. Condensing dryers, are you getting complaints from owners on that? I uh, have not heard any, and uh, we've got We've got a couple of them up and running now, and they seem to be great. Fantastic. You know, and I know there's the ability to transfer those if it's not drying quick enough to go to all electric, which I would, you know, right. tell people please don't do that. But it's nice that both the dryer and the water heater have the ability to um, change that if they need it, especially the water heater. If they're not getting enough hot water, they can stick it into a different mm-hmm. mode. There's a they call it different things, economy mode, but usually hybrid mode is both heat pump. And right. so what about heat pump water heaters? Some more there. Um, tell me your, your experience with heat pump water heaters. So those are a little different because they make a little bit of noise 
and they definitely cool down the area that they're in. So you can't necessarily just put them in a small mechanical room. You need to share that space. And what we've been doing is some of these higher end homes have a big, um, uh, you know, the smart home system, Mm -hmm. which generates some heat. (laughs) And we're putting them back to back and we're putting, uh, you know, uh, uh, we're able to share the air between the rooms. And then in one house, we have a workout room adjacent to that. So we're cooling that room down a little bit. That's great. Not too bad. Yeah. And in the other one, we're uh, we're getting air from a different area, so it's that's been working out well. Um, uh, we haven't run it through different seasons yet, but it seems to be working very well. And they have not been running out of hot water. That's so great. Everything's been great. Yeah, I'd, I'd say to you, know, you and to make sure your clients and listeners have this perspective that uh, if you know we are in the nascency even of how we cool our buildings, right? We're still using vapor compression largely and there's absorptive chilling and solid state chillers out there. So there's many other ways that we can heat and cool buildings. And the same thing with heat pump water heaters in spades, it's, it's still a new quote unquote technology and it's changing fast. Things like the new Rheem Prestige, two eight inch ducts on the top where the heat pump is standard. That means you can duct your intake and your output and you can, if you have a good mechanical designer, they can you know, damper that to help in the winter. I want to send my output here in the summer. I want my input from here, but the big exciting thing is is two of them. One is split system heat pump water heaters. These Sandin systems that are now in the country where the noise making pieces outdoors. Oh, they're so great. So we, we've been using the Mitsubishi ones pretty much exclusively because they're, they're tested down to minus 20, which in our climate is key. Uh, I was such a geek. I looked up all the weather data from like the last 25 years in the winter to see how many days were below that. And it was very few. It was really like an hour here and an hour there. And frankly, a house like what we're doing is going to coast through that pretty easily. So we do many zones Mm -hmm. of that because of the size of the houses. Yeah. So we did, we did one with five zones. We did one with 12 zones. That was a very large house. Um, but they're working great. And, uh, we have, you know, in the past, many, many years ago, we used radiant heat for the mm-hmm. floors, and we've kind of stopped that. Um, we've had issues where, you know, we have a couple inches of thermal mass, and it takes a while to get that up to temperature. And let's say it's cloudy out, we've got passive solar with that, and then the clouds yeah. break, and then the sun comes in, and we get an instant uh, rush of yeah, heat. Yeah, but the floor is still pumping it out. <laughs> right. So then we, for a very short period of time, we went to a low mass thermal system mm-hmm. where you know and we really have just stopped if if the envelope is very tight like we do and very well insulated then uh, we really don't have an issue with that and so now the mini splits are the best way to do it they're super controllable um they're really great yeah, that's that's a great way to talk about why it's good to focus on the enclosure because it, it the impact of even on a forced air system, the impact of diffuser location and type, it, it's reduced. You can, you're going to have higher thermal comfort without having to, you know, really make sure that diffuser is in the right place, throwing the right way. But with the heat pump water here, just wrapping that up, these split, they have, um, now in our country, you can get a split system heat pump water heater where the, it's just a tank indoors. That's the way it should be. Absolutely. I mean, I, everything that's doing that should have an outdoor yep. condenser. Yep. Because the kind of funny thing is that, like I said, the workout room and this other room are getting some of that cold air. It's like the heater, the uh, system needs to be put on heating. Yeah. 
and they're just to balance it, it's, you know, it's like two steps. It doesn't need to be that. And if we can get that condenser outside, it's yep, well said. And to tie it back into what you just talked about with the um, heating and cooling system for the air very soon. And in Europe and in Australia, for instance, the Mitsubishi, even in single phase, you can connect your water heater to your outdoor unit for your heating and cooling system for the air conditioning, right? Yeah. You know what's funny is for the longest time when computers first came out, they used to make fun of buildings like, oh, computers are doubling in power every six months and doing this in houses. If they did that, well, now houses are very different. I think it's a very interesting time. There's a lot of really cool things going Mm -hmm. on and making progress, like you just mentioned, of outside condensers and integrating everything. It's really – and all the automation. Yeah. Yeah, now let's 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 wrap that up there. So we, I know we want to talk a little bit more about energy on, on the electric side, and then I want to bring you back to this next house alliance. But how? What's your approach to automation? Um, you know, we get clients who really are at the very lower end of that, and some that are at the like unbelievable high end. So it really depends. Wow. So we've done systems where it's just all kind of Apple Kit, HomeKit, mm-hmm. and it's. You know, like I like the Lyric thermostat. It's got geofencing. What a great thing. You know, you drive three miles away and once all the phones are out of that range, uh, the temperature changes, goes down. And then when you penetrate back into that distance, it goes back up. So it's not just setting your your thermostat for setbacks. It's kind of real time. So something like that is so cheap and easy. So we get people that are in the under 5,000 for smart home stuff. And we just did a house that had, I'm thinking it was 300,000, you know, it's just really all over the place. And it's a totally different experience, of course, for that kind of money, but and there's everything in between. So to not do it is crazy. There's great ways to do it. And we always want to just make sure that we're allowing people to add things later. So even solar mm-hmm. panels, pre-wiring for that, pre-wiring for an electric car charger. We just want to make sure we're getting ready for some changes that we need. They are coming and they're coming fast. Let's talk about the electric car charger and, you know, energy production with solar and energy storage generally. Are you starting to work that into your designs? Oh, absolutely. So we, you know, we do solar panels on almost every building. And and it's funny, we'll get people like, oh, Chicago, how, how can you be doing that? And I say to them, Look at Germany, where the same latitude uh-huh. cloud cover, basically, and you look at how great Germany has been doing yeah. with it. So it's just a matter of how many panels. The panel costs have come down so right. much. And so we try and do that on every house. And we've had some people, again, not n- not understanding this. And after we talk to them, they get it. And now they have these great systems on their roof. Um, and then we're starting to look at battery backup. And we're still... You know, we're still not quite ready for it. Uh, we've been wanting to do it. We did one system 10 years ago, and that's a whole other story. I mean, we did one long, long ago. Uh, yeah, not great uh, batteries, and, and the systems obviously have changed tremendously since then. But we're pre-wiring for every house now with for a battery backup. Um, the technology is coming. The cost is getting to the right point. Um, we're hitting a problem right now with uh, the um, panel size not being big enough for what we hmm. need. So I think all that will be corrected soon. And then we're putting in car charging uh, ability into all the garages. And what we see coming very soon is the ability of an electric car to pull into the garage, plug it in, and actually help power the house during an outage. Wow. So you'll have a sub-panel 
off the electric that's kind of got their base stuff that they need, you know, be it refrigerators, mm-hmm. sump pumps, et cetera, whatever they think is perfect for them. And then having a battery backup that's fully charged when the power goes out. And what I always say is if the car is going to be half charged, it'll never be fully charged when you need it. But even just looking at that and with the solar panels able to continuously recharge all that, you're in pretty good shape. You're in very good shape at that point. And I just think in the next two years, we're going to be in uh, really set up well for that. I know that Mits- um, that Nissan, you can do that now. You can do vehicle to yep. building, but it's uh, it's not. Yeah, it's not mainstream yet. Not smooth mm-hmm. yet. Yeah, absolutely. It's not mainstream and it's a little clunky. So, uh, but I think moving forward, that's going to be, you know, the Teslas, uh, Mercedes, Porsche, uh Volvo, all these companies are going to be totally on. Absolutely. The the electrification of transportation and the combination of the clean energy technology, the grid, you know, going to distributed energy renewables, it's it's all, you know, it's like a a confluence of forces that are big changes, big levers. Yeah, totally (laughs) coming together right in the nick of time. Yeah, I think so too. All right. So I want to talk to you about Next House Alliance, and I think we should wrap up then. We're getting toward an hour here. And um, so, and after that, we'll just do any final thoughts. So you mentioned earlier, you wanted to come back to talk about the next house Alliance. What is that? And why is that important? Well, again, it's a team that's going to have, um, knowledge at that level. And so it's, it's the whole setup. It's the architect, interior designer, landscape architect, um, contractor and technology integrator, which is a really Mm -hmm. important one. And, um, and it's because we're all speaking the same language and we're all at that knowledge point, we're able to do these homes uh, really well. And we're able to fill a need in the, uh, in the industry that isn't there right now, which is, I think, I think a lot of people in the sustainable world are spooked or, or look down on these very large projects. And to me, again, these things are the biggest carbon footprint, and you can have the biggest impact on that. A big house like this might be the, might have a carbon footprint three times uh, a typical house or something. And so, therefore, let's do it. Let's get this house down to where it needs to be, and and then spread the word amongst yeah, those people. I think that's so important that this is the way to do it. And you know, when their friends come over and they see how cool it is. Why why wouldn't you? And here's the joke I make. You have two identical houses, okay? One's done this way and one's not. One's able to be resiliently, uh, able to handle um, resiliently, and the other isn't. And when the power goes out, that family is going to be like, why in the world did we do this? And the cost on the margin for a house like that, it's, it's, you know, maybe maybe it's the cost of a home theater. Maybe it's the cost of the cabinet upgrade. Who cares? You know, it's, it's, you have to think a little differently than when we're looking at affordable housing, which we've done and attainable housing. Yeah. This is where they're at and we can um, utilize what they have and make this house perform. There's, it's basically no Mm -hmm. excuses. Yeah. And it's also the case that if you think about the model, like where did airbags enter automobiles, high-end luxury automobiles, you know, cell phones with early adopters were their luxury items. Um, so the first thing you do is you get them into our society, society's vernacular, 
And getting back to the two houses there, the difference isn't just energy performance uh, and sustainability. One of the differences is also resale, right? This is a this is a t- tangible economic Correct. asset, and you're putting in the energy equivalent Correct. of a shag carpet or an olive green appliance if you're not building carefully today or thoughtfully. This yeah. is their. This is typically the largest investment anyone's ever going to do, and you're building this house, why wouldn't you set it up correctly yeah. and resale being key yeah, part of absolutely. that? absolutely. And what really churns my butter is what's still common around here is um, this tremendous emphasis on what's outside the walls, the surface finishes, you know, what's visual. And yet what's behind the walls, even if it's a nice Mitsubishi or any VRF you know, system, the distribution system, it's made out of all flex duct and ductboard, and there's no thought how it's going to go. And, you know, that's, that's a long-term value that's been missed. Well, and the other thing is uh, there's the technology aspect, but there's also the aesthetic aspect. And, you know, like our tagline is high design, low carbon. And we're very serious about that. And I think it's sort of easy to do either one of those. And the challenge is to do both. And that's how you get the market to want to have it. It's a Tesla. It's just like a yeah. Tesla. Yeah, yeah, I think that could be a fantastic uh, place to end. It's not an either or, it's both. Uh, do you have any final thoughts to add to that? I mean, I guess the only thing I would add is, uh, you know, we've all got to get on board with this. And uh, time is running out. We don't have options for 50-year solutions mm-hmm. anymore. It's, uh, it's showtime. And I think architects are a key part of this, a very key part of it. And um, I don't think there's a reason not to do it. There should not be excuses. I think it's uh, it's able to be done to integrate both of these and to be successful with um, marketing it like that and getting it out to the public and getting them engaged and not making them feel like this is a step down. This is actually yeah. a step up. Yeah, you don't need to be timid. You can have it all. That's such an important thought right. to end on. You listeners out there, wherever you are, please start where you are. Start making these movements toward the future of, of buildings and houses. You'll be glad you did. Thanks again, Nathan, for uh, sharing your thoughts and your wisdom. And uh, thank you all for listening. <laughs>